0: This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Eric Newton. Eric is the Vice President of Growth at BrightEdge, and has previously served as the Senior Director of Marketing at TiVo, and the Head of Search Marketing and Online Acquisition at Netflix. On this episode, Eric talks all about where marketing is going. He discusses why the marketing funnel is going to flip, why the marketing stack is the key pillar of growth, and why customer relationships will matter more than ever in the future. Enjoy.
1: Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes.
2: Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And in studio, Eric, how's it going? It's going good. Awesome. Well, we have a A lot of stuff to get through today. And I'm really excited to talk all things, your background, SEO, marketing 5.0. We're going to go through some history of marketing and all of that stuff. But first, tell me a little bit about BrightEdge and and what you're working on.
3: Yeah, BrightEdge is an SEO platform that helps people show up at Google and drive traffic from Google to their site. I'm the VP of growth there and I'm the head of SEO. I've been there for about five years.
2: I and mean, you know, we talked before this that you very purposely chose VP of growth. Why is that?
3: Yeah, I, I I wanted to force myself to develop and evolve. And I thought the direction of growth was the main trend that I was seeing in marketing. I've been in marketing for a couple of decades, and I've had what I've had the opportunity to see four different phases. And growth was clearly the phase that I think was the emerging phase that there was a lot of emphasis on particularly in the mid-sized companies, that's where people who do what I do in the size companies that I do it were most interested in the skill set and in order to keep my skill set fresh and competitive and in demand for for my career, growth was the the right the right path for me
2: you know and and we talked before this about how this idea of growth and we've had a bunch of or a handful of growth experts kind of on the show and this idea that this rise of the head of growth and we have a head of growth an amazing head of growth Dylan here at here at mission is the skill set that's just going to morph into the cmo like that this is just going to be one part of the one part of the uh, the mindset here and i like talking about it more as a mindset than as like a bag of tricks i think it's the constant iteration and experimentation that that creates so much value earlier in your career you know you did a, a stint At Netflix, as head of search marketing and online acquisition, was there kind of the early feelings of growth at that point in time? Or was this something that was much more like search was the primary thing and there weren't like the additional growth hacking kind of tactics that we see today?
3: The early days at Netflix, I was there 2007 to 2010. Uh, they were traditional marketing and advertising channels, so they had a huge budget. It was north of a hundred million dollars a year, and they had invested over ten years, close to a billion dollars, to build that brand to where it was before the digital content rollout. So it wasn't really a growth hacking environment. It was channel. It was dedicated channel managers. So yeah. one person had like ten to forty million dollars to spend, and you sat and concentrated on that one thing. For forty hours a week, and you just want, you worked your spreadsheet and you did your analysis. And if you were slack, then you did it again and figured out everything you could figure out, whether it was display or affiliates or SEO or paid search or you know, some of the traditional channels like a direct mail through the like through newspaper and stuff, the Sunday circular. Very was a very expensive investment that actually paid off uh, through the other channels.
2: Yeah, and did you feel like at that time? you know and kind of you know since then you spent time at Tivo and Vincy and and now in your current role that this evolution that we're gonna get into here in a little bit of the fact that that's kind of single channel ownership and strategy is something that is evolving that how these journeys are taking place um, managing these kind of numbers is is changing do you think that like early days or, um, I mean I guess it wasn't super early days at Netflix but with that type amount of budget and that type of spending. How were you thinking about, how do we do this better? How do we, you know, make this something that is predictable, repeatable, that yeah. brings, brings that business over time?
3: So Netflix was really about data accuracy. It was really about LTV and essentially ROI. And Everything you could do, your job was to squeeze as much value out of that single channel vertically. Whatever you could figure out in terms of the creative that you were using, the offers that you were extending... That's what they wanted you to do. And it wasn't really about cross-channel functionality. It was about single-channel functionality in the aggregate. Yeah, And we had, all, it was everything was in spreadsheets. Everybody was a quant jock. And they hired a lot of Ivy League people to come in and just look really hard at the numbers and manage it really tight. And that's a good job. Netflix culture was peculiar. There, There was no bonuses and there was no stock grants. They just give you a total amount of money and you can buy stock with that. You can just take it all cash you can buy your health insurance or not. They they didn't really care. They canceled the ESPP program. It's just like, this is your comp. They didn't have um, holiday parties. It's like, we figured people would just rather go hang out with their friends. That's so funny.
2: (laughs) Did you, so, you know, taking those kind of lessons and learning vertically, did you ever feel like there was an opportunity for cross-pollination there for like, were you sharing secrets with each other? Like how'd that work?
3: No, there was a silo problem. So the beginning of your question was, do I think that this had to evolve? And I think it, it absolutely did. It became ineffective. And all types of silos are ineffective. Departments themselves are silos that are sort of in the way. And as we get lot farther into this conversation, kicking down walls is everything that a CEO wants in a small mid-sized company. That they don't, they don't see walls there. They see everybody as resources to be applied to the opportunities that they have in their market. So one of the things that I saw as an opportunity was proving out the cross-channel effect. So this is a long time ago and I wanted to do an attribution study. So brand TV, TV, not on the direct response side was spending a lot of money. And then they started to come after some of the digital budgets. And I said, well, you know, is TV in zone or not? Because it's yeah. kind of hard, a little bit hard to tell, right? That we'd have to say a hundred dollar LTV. And so I I went... To collect the data from all the silos and it wasn't easy and it wasn't comfortable and people were not excited about this cross-functional look at all of our data and we ran that we did a very sophisticated uh, statistical analysis on all the channels on 10 years of data and it proved out that TV brand TV was doing rather well it was almost in the right zone from what we could prove on the attribution model so that's one example It's not quite a growth hack, but it is that cross-channel, it it is an integrated look that a CMO or somebody who's really thinking broadly about the business needs to know about the journey and uh, how all the uh, investments are working together.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's so funny thinking about individual channels and not thinking about the interplay between those. I mean, especially now, like, and you know, I mean, that was a little over a decade ago, but you think about that now and you're like, you would never do that.
3: It probably still happens out there, probably not in a smaller company, but in bigger companies, as people become dedicated, you you hire people by these roles you were familiar with five years ago, which is why we're talking about this progression that's going in less than 10-year increments, and you do hire people to do email, and you do hire people to do display, and it's somewhat to their advantage to define their job narrowly, because they can complete their job easier. They can succeed at their job and hit their bonus easier if they don't create 30% of their work being cross, cross-functional collaboration. That's- Totally agree. It's not easy. It's a very different mindset. It's a matrix mindset instead of a, a vertical mindset. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough jump for a lot of people who have any kind of five, 10 years background doing that channel. That's what they're good at. That's how they make their living. So I, I can see why people hang on to it, but I can see why CMOs get turned over and CEOs reorg this, uh, this marketing org every two years.
2: Well, and I think ultimately like buyers have changed. The customer journey has changed a lot. And I think that obviously what you're working on at Bright Edge and you know, figuring out ways to engage customers across the entire customer journey, because it is a journey. It isn't a linear path anymore. And maybe, you know, maybe it never was. But I think that, you know, from a lot of the marketing leaders that we talk to is trying to look at all these channels and how they interplay with each other and how now that you have a mobile device with you every single second of every day, it's a totally different experience. And if you see something on a billboard or in an event or whatever it is, you can just look it up right then, you know. And I, I kind of want to get into some of um, some of these trends, like where is marketing going and kind of where have where have we been? So you have this this kind of framework that I thought is really interesting. So we're going to go through marketing 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, and 4.0 real quick here for the listeners sure and and kind of walk through like what are you thinking for each of these phases so let's start and i i guess if you want to tee up like why is this important uh, in general
3: well, understanding where we've been uh, helps us understand where we're going, it helps us understand how these phases are evolving and what we need to do to be at the cutting edge and not the trailing edge at, uh, at each thing. If you're at the trailing edge as a marketing professional, you might be end up unemployed if you don't have the skills that are desired five years from now. That's why we have to keep up. The pace of change is really accelerating. So if we think about the 1.0 phase, 1900 to 1995, which was the big brand era, big advertising agency era, big budgets where people are spending billions of dollars to control capital and to control distribution and then investing huge amounts of money in television and building the audience with a megaphone and and being asymmetric and saying, this is our product, you want it. And it was the era of consumer goods, Procter & Gamble and food products. And you had to build a brand And you built that brand to differentiate commodity products, but you could make a lot of money at it.
2: And it was one to many and a lot of that stuff. And this is, you know, potentially splitting hairs on on these sort of things. But saying that TV was just an extension of newspaper, I think is pretty accurate. I mean, you're talking about one to many push stuff, not, not, not any type of like value add content, potentially there's experiments here and there of people doing like, you know, branded content or content marketing kind of things that ended up being really successful, but by and large, it's one to many. And you have kind of that magazine style approach where, okay, now we're going to take these niches and put them in. Here's this magazine for this thing. And, and, and that sort of thing, but you're still generally speaking, limited amounts of personalization, yeah, um, lots you're of broadcasting.
3: Money. It was the the traditional media channels. It was the offline channels that that you put up a billboard. You're saying that one message, and it's not dynamic, and it it's not customized.
2: And radio and all of that. So, anyways, uh,
3: that's the 1.0 generation. And and I worked at at Japan's largest ad agency, Densu. So it was a dominant. It was the Madison Avenue of Tokyo, and we controlled huge amounts of budget, a multi billion dollar ad agency running those kind of campaigns. And it it was great at the time in that culture. 1995 to 2010, I would say is marketing 2.0, and this is where the digital channels come in. And the digital channels had an interesting effect on people. And in the the direct channels before that were, were what we called below the line. They were direct mail and direct response TV and infomercials, which were not very glamorous. They weren't considered, you know, the property of real brands. But in in this second era, there's digital distribution and there's tracking. And all of a sudden the accountability totally changes and people don't, you don't just carpet bomb and blanket all over, you can see what's working and you can tune and adjust it. And that's, that's the phase I was at Netflix. Those were the channels you were asking me about. And like, did we do anything complicated and hacky? No, we just did those channels. We hired really smart people and we let them work really hard and stay really focused on those channels. That's the 2.0 phase. One of the things to think about is that these two things don't go together. 1.0 and 2.0 didn't fit together very well. Yeah. You sort of bolt these things together under a CMO, and then you sort of developed head of digital, which was the more logical top player. And the CMO was really focused on brand and communication and corpcom. And probably didn't understand these things. And that that CMO, that style CMO started to get phased out because of the, they couldn't deal with the LTV and the accountability. So Leslie Kilgore was a fantastic performance CMO who was also able to do uh, a lot of research and a lot of positioning, a lot of branding. She was really great at both. And then in 2010 to 2015, I would say is the 3.0 generation. And that's the debut of social and this huge emphasis on building community and content marketing, the the words inbound, like we didn't really talk about inbound yeah. much before then. And the social platforms themselves became huge powerhouses, not just for consumer products, but even for B2B products. Eventually it wasn't at first. And this mindset is totally different than the channel manager who has $10 million and is just going to, you know, run the numbers all day. You have to engage, you have to create content, you have to. And this is where some of these skills from the people from the 1.0 generation can be recycled here. Those people who are good at creating content and connecting with, with an audience have some credence and some uh, authority to create the content you need for social. But in the social, this 3.0 era, it's UGC, the users are starting to generate the content. And that's a real shift in control from this highly centralized 1.0 model to this 3.0 model where we're doing it together or you're doing most of it like Yelp. Yelp creates a little bit of content and then the users create 95% of it and that's their whole business and that's what makes it, you know, valuable and insightful. But you got to be comfortable managing a community and encouraging them to create content for your benefit for free. That's and, that's not an easy jump.
2: Well yeah, and I think that user-generated content is a term that is often thrown around. And it means multiple things. Like user generated content for Nextdoor is their product, right? Like Nextdoor's product is users user generated content for um, you know, what's another you know example? If you UGC, the ultimate UGC is Facebook. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And, yeah, exactly. and Twitter and the, I mean, pl- the like platform.
3: Look what the president's doing for Twitter on user generated content from the White House. Yeah, exactly. It's an amazing example of them getting in. Getting in the news all the time just because he's using their platform.
2: Yeah, exactly. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if you're selling, you know, desk chairs, that you're going to have user generated desk chair content, or that that should be a focus of your strategy. Maybe it should be. I don't know uh, if anyone's got some desk chair videos out there. But I think it's this idea of like,
3: I think there's a play there, Ian. Like how, yeah, how do you, you use go. a de- how do you use a particular chair? Like there's so many handles on a good chair, like an Aeron chair. Like getting that adjustment just or,
2: right, or like a race. We could do like twenty desk chairs every year. Like how fast could you race the The unboxing?
3: I mean the the mattresses. Like I've I've been shop I shop for mattresses pretty regularly, and I really want to know how other people are using like uh, the adjustable beds and things. I'm fascinated with the I'm I'm more interested in the UGC than the corporate G C.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. But I think that like that type of thing to your original point is it never existed. There was this No, it didn't you couldn't They
3: listened. We talked, they listened. That was the broadcast era. We go from the 3.0 era to the 4.0 era. And the 4.0 era is about, is about growth. This is the growth era. The, they, they came up with the term in like 2011, 2012. It got popularized a few years later. And by 2015, people were really talking about it throughout our industry. Job descriptions are, are, are looking for these type of skills. So what is it? Well, it's really focused on the journey. It's focused on the APIs that connect the points. So exactly the opposite of what you were saying, what we didn't do at Netflix is connect how these things work together to understand attribution, to understand multi-touch, to capture synergy, and then to hack the synergy, to find where those untapped markets were to make people share it with other people and to get it to grow without putting a lot of money into it what I call intentional viral distribution. And it's really based on the product itself. It's not based on what we say about the product. The product is doing a lot of the work to get this growth hack and this distribution. And the needs of the marketer become much more technical. You go much deeper into the stack. You under, If you don't understand basically every part of your marketing stack, you're not going to be able to see the gaps between the products and the steps that you can fill in in a creative way that somebody hasn't figured out yet or to get onto a UGC environment or a community environment and to get your your message distributed and your product distributed with it.
2: Well, and I think, you know, in the in the 2010, and really with the start of uh, of Google, but you started seeing the for the first time intent based off of, you know, obviously search. But you could now like measure this kind of intent. And now with the multi-touch journey, it's like, oh, it's not just an intent of someone like to buy a product. We can measure intent in a a one to 100 scale. We can lead score. We can do all of these types of measurements rather than, you know, back in the day of the magazine where it's like, oh, well, I know if they're following this trade magazine, you know, like Horse Whisperer magazine, then they're into horses in some form or fashion because they pay money for this magazine every month. But now we can figure out, you know, where they are in the journey or ultimately once they buy, how do we keep them? Which is another thing that is, I think the growth, this growth, you know, marketing 4.0 phase that you're talking about and the customer journey that you're talking about is so much more about lifetime value and keeping customers engaged and delivering on the promise. I think that that was the ultimate, you know, marketing back in, in phase one through three was about making promises and now yeah. marketing gets to keep help keep those promises that the product is making that that's the part that's really exciting you know for me as a marketer
3: yeah i agree the role of marketing has become much more horizontal and like you said Our opportunity isn't just to make the promises and to get the acquisition, but it's to be responsible. And that's why the product is so it's so important for marketers to be aware of the product and how people use the product so that they engage with it and keep using it, particularly when the products become non things they become digital things like apps or music and movies that are all just digital bits, how they interact with it and, and really understanding the consumer intent. I think in the earlier phases, in the one and two phases, we created demand, we created awareness, and I think in the three and four phases, we work to understand the demand. That's yeah. uh, that's that's the sensitivity, that's the insight we're able to get, and the requirement as of marketers has become much much more broad and deep and much more specific and much more technical to be able to do statistics, to be able to run experiments, to be able to do HTML markup, to be able to hook APIs together. If you don't really understand how your products work together, then you're just licensing a bunch of siloed stuff and you're getting maybe a quarter or a fifth of the value out of whatever platforms you have in the stack.
2: Yeah, it's a great point. You know, We, we talked before this about webinars and how you know, I don't know when when the first webinar was done. That would be a great if anyone out there listening knows uh, can can tell me when the first webinar was done. But the idea of we kind of said, okay, we can make a date and time where we're going to talk to people at scale. We're going to use whatever thing we're going to use. We're going to get people in a digital room, and we're going to talk. We're basically going to pitch them like one to many, right? That was kind of like the original use case. And then now you look at. Everything that goes into that, well, you can create content for this that lives multiple different places. That content can be, a webinar is just one of the many types of content that you can use from this thing. If it's something that you're going to probably put into your ad campaigns, if it's going to be something else, how have you seen, like using webinars as an example, how have you seen kind of that horizontal sprawl of, of marketing abilities?
3: So webinar is a point in the journey. It's usually lower funnel. In, in the B2B funnel, we are getting people to come in on leads and it's a light touch and it's something they were interested in. They found us on Google, they came in and they they downloaded a white paper. They uh, they checked out a checklist or an infographic that they downloaded. We get to know them and the webinar is a way to get to know them better. So it's a, it's a down funnel movement technique that we can use that's not as intimidating as a regular sales call because they're talking to marketers or they're not being talked to directly. They like the a somewhat anonymous group where they might be able to ask a question, but they don't necessarily have to interact with the person who's speaking. And we get great engagement from people who've been quiet and, and not responding to other sales outbound techniques. And we draw them in with the inbound and then you do a survey at the end. You ask them, would you like Bright Edge to contact you? Yeah, and a couple percent of the everybody in the webinar says sure, and that's really a on our way to doing a bright edge demo.
2: Yeah, and and I think it's just emblematic of this idea that you can meet people where they want to be met now, and that's that's a fundamental yeah. shift too. Is yeah. you know you have these online only journeys, especially in the in the digital world, and there's not a lot of engineers that want to sit through a bunch of sales calls. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. I've n- I've not met one that's like yeah, let's let's get fired up to learn more from somebody who doesn't know about engineering, for example. Mm-hmm. So you have these specialists that they're like, I just want a 100% digitally native journey. I want to be able to swipe my credit card and buy. Mm-hmm. And then you have other people who want to be walked through the journey. Sure. And this sort of thing is like, we can serve all sorts of different things to this. How has that changed? Because that's not something that you know in the 1.0 or 2.0 phases could really happen one of the things that's
3: really interesting about selling to engineers and and there's a there's an engineering persona in our world too is that they are they do open their email they do read their email and they like to read things they like to do it quietly and they like to have a lot of control of how they consume the information that's absolutely true so one of the ways we address that opportunity across the different personas is to build content libraries so mm-hmm. A library is basically 10 pieces of something so we have checklists we have white papers we have povs povs are really interesting i've written about 15 and as the head of seo it's sort of incumbent upon me to create content that other people in my company can read and we can be aligned on what we think about particular things particular unsolved questions in the industry so i create these papers you know maybe for a different purpose maybe they were mostly created for my salespeople and my cs people but then they make a nice library, so they put them up on a library, and then there's people passively consuming those, and that's point of entry for people. But on a curated basis, we have a lot of human beings who work in the Bright Edge uh, workflow, and they can pick out the right thing. They use human intelligence and say, I, Ian, I think you'd like to read this one. They pick out number seven and send it over. So creating that digital experience gives us a chance to address people in the mid-funnel but the content as a library becomes something Google appreciates and gives you credit for, like we rank first for SEO webinars. We rank first for you know, SEO research reports, SEO POVs. And if you get the content organized and Google respects it, with that it has authority, then you get both top of funnel and that mid funnel and lower funnel. You get multi-use out of this journey. Uh, the content is distributed across the journey, but it was built for passive consumption, let's say.
2: So then what's next? What is marketing 5.0? What do you think is coming around the, around the bend?
3: Yeah, this is a great question, and I'm not sure how much time we're going to have, uh, have left to do it. But before we do that, let me touch on a couple of things, these are kind of obvious puts and takes from 1.0 to 4.0. And I broke up a list of things that, are, that have changed. So ad budgets, big ad budgets, down Big capital, capital capital-intensive factories, big supply chains down. Physical product, probably not as important. There's so many huge, uh, important, evolving businesses that don't even have physical product. They're all digital. Silos, I think, are out. Any kind of silos is bad. So any kind of vertical structures are, are really kind of part of the history, not part of the future headcount. I think headcount's been going down as long as I've been in marketing. You know, the uh, marketing teams used to be dozens and dozens of people, and now they can be three, four, five, six people. Single function managers, I think, are are on the way out. And I think brand as a as a selling feature is the main thing that marketing does. I think that's on the way out. Now, things that are on the way in, any thoughts on that before, before I move off, Ian?
2: Yeah. I mean, I would say how agencies and contractors play into this. And I think like the term agency, and we use a lot on this podcast, but agency is, it's never really a good word because it doesn't describe accurately what you're talking about. The difference between like a top five agency, like an an enormous agency versus, you know, contracting work through Upwork is outsourcing some type of problem to someone else that who can solve it with, you know, better resources or expertise or can save you time and money or, or whatever it is. So I would say, You know, I would add to that outsourcing as both maybe some of that comes in house and maybe some of it goes out of house, but it's different functions are being brought in versus out. Um, Yeah,
3: I I thought about that paradigm and I I wasn't sure what my conclusion is on uh, was I don't know either. But I think our ability to pull in the right labor at the right time, it's a build versus buy decision or borrow yeah. and you know from upwork you just borrow for a couple of hours for 20, 30 bucks an hour and you get you get the performance you need and that prevents you it helps prevent you from building silos because you don't hire a person who's defined as doing this these two things you get a person who does that one thing when you need it that allows us to drop the head countdown and increase the efficiency and make the organization more more matrix because smaller groups are less they're less territorial than big groups. Big groups naturally form clans.
2: I, was, I have a question for you. Yeah. what was the last time you've done a focus group?
3: We did a lot of focus groups at Netflix and we did them at VidC. So VidC after TiVo. And I have an incredible amount of interaction with my customers because I'm the head of community. So I have 10 or 15 user groups per quarter. And I'm around a table with my customers and I do surveys every time so it's it's not a traditional focus group like by a research agency but I do get the I- impact why do you ask
2: yeah I mean I'm just curious I think that this was one of the selling points of agencies traditionally is like that's where economies of scale come in if an agency is really good at doing focus groups and they have a large percentage of ways that they can do that and they're working with a ton of different clients yeah. it's economies of scale but now the shift is to you got to be You know with your customers all the time you have to have a constant dialogue with those people and you can use their customer journey as different types of signals of what they need so you can track digitally what they're doing which like intent based um and their actual actions which is nice and you can ask them the questions and i just kind of think and i'm curious just to how you know not that one is one is better than the other but i see that as a fundamental change is the relationship as close to getting to the customer as possible is where marketing wants to be in the future. And if that's the case, then who's responsible for talking to them? Well, it's gotta be marketing.
3: Yeah, you're doing a good job of setting up the 5.0 story. I think that growth itself is all about, everything's an experiment. The whole thing's a focus group. Everything you do with your product, everything you do with email, everything you do with your website, if you're paying attention, you can get hundreds and hundreds of pieces of feedback per hour if you have the volume. I think that's changed. I think it's the digitization that allows us not to use the large agency who brings those people to that that uh, focus group study thing that we used to do 10 or 15 years ago. All right, let's talk about some things that are on the upswing. APIs, the marketing stack itself, hugely important. It's sort of the key pillar of growth. The cloud, you know, you can't underestimate the fact that you can start a business that you and I could start a pretty significant business. We have a good idea. We don't even need servers anymore. Also. I mean- yeah, we've got laptops and we can get as much server power as we would ever need to execute our idea from uh, Amazon or Google or a couple other providers. Our
2: whole company is 100% cloud.
3: Nice. I think that the product itself, marketing's engagement with the product is way on the up. That that if you're, not, if you're a CMO or you're a VP and you don't have a say, if your job isn't defined to give you involvement in the product, you're not really well positioned for 4.0 or 5.0 matrix teams uh, scrum teams agile teams these things are on the up this is silos and barriers are on the way out and people moving around solving problems together without real hard definitions of who traditionally did what that's that's definitely on the up multifunction managers direct relationships with customers which you alluded to connecting conveniently using empathy to understand the customer experience and making sure that it's easy for them to get information from you and it's convenient we're so much more sensitive to that now that we can see where it's breaking, even, you know, whether you're an online banking or you're a, you know, a finance app, whatever you can see where people stop using you. And there's, there's usually some friction that they're encountering that you want to remove. As I said, empathy is, is a requirement. And it's an interesting thing who in the company is in a better position to exercise empathy than the marketing group. Cause that's, sort of our traditional role is to think about the customer and interact with the customer and not be back in the in the factory or in the in the engineering lab building things
2: absolutely I mean that's like one of the one of the key differentiators of whether it was the brand marketer from from 1.0 all the way to now marketers need to be exceptional empathizers that's yeah. like if, if you're not thinking in a way I mean and ultimately all of your hypotheses should be testing points that you feel that your customers feel vulnerable. Like that's the point of the test.
3: Yeah. Or your product is vulnerable to them disengaging. It's that disengagement that we're trying to prevent. And there's this feeling of this is too hard. This is too frustrating. There's not enough value in this exercise for me as a customer. And if you can't perceive that and measure it and react to it, You're not a growth hacker. You're not in 4.0. You might be in three. You might be in two, but you're not going to be. You're not going to be adding enough value. So direct access to users and accountability are on the up. So a lot of accountability for whatever's going wrong. Like we're we're all in it together, and there's no you know there's I think there's less finger pointing in the 4.0 environment than there was in the in the 2.0 or the 1.0. So those are some of the things that are changing. I think that gives us the direction through the 4.0. So what is 5.0 going to be? If we think about the number of years in these phases, they were nine, 10 decades, then they were two decades, then they were a half a decade. We're kind of in half decade increments now as we've broken it out. So it means we could be due for the 5.0 in the next year or two, and something else is going to evolve. What's that going to be? And I think it is going to be owning the customer experience end to end. And it sounds like something we've said before, but we were largely talking about the buyer's journey and getting people and then we were talking about the life cycle but we're going to be even broader and talk about the entire customer experience everything that customer experiences while they're interacting with us from prospect to renewal to becoming a 10-year customer and driving them to become advocates are you familiar with the term flip the funnel yeah absolutely yeah when you get your customers to go out and sell for you you don't need a big ad budget if people are so excited about, you know, their particular app. There's an app I love called Beehive. It controls the sprinklers in my house. <laughs> nice. And it is the one of the greatest apps and it never frustrates me. And like this is one of the only apps I go out in public and tell other people that if you it's Beehive, B, Hyphen, H Y V E. Yeah. I'm an advocate for them. I've written a review for them. They've managed my experience perfectly. If the um, power unplugs to the unit, it, it contacts me on my cell phone and says that I'm offline. Yeah. And I go in and check it and figure out what's going on with it. I love that app. And that is they have understood the, the homeowner's experience to make sure that the plants don't die. And so we go beyond like hacking things together to being like you said earlier, the things that are required in growth are what the CMO always should have been and what the CMO will be is somebody who controls and influences and enhances the end-to-end customer experience that's 5.0 and it is it's a hard job it's a it's a hard job it's it's hard to organize it's hard to have the the right culture in the company that's going to allow the marketing group to strongly influence the engineering group and to strongly influence the sales group it would elevate marketing even further for marketing to understand things about that experience that others that the product managers or the salespeople haven't figured out because they normally have a pretty fair amount of contact. Marketing needs to up up its game to control this 5.0 era coming, you know, in a year or two.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that there's so many ways to provide insights. And I think it's that like proactive nature. You know, we see this with the best with any really C-level executives that are at, at the top of their game. It's that they're bringing insights that the other business functions had no idea were yeah. them like that oftentimes didn't even know you were tracking. Like those type of insights were like, oh, how did, how did you find that's, that?
3: That's a hack, right? They're, they're running experiments. They're learning really hard stuff so that they have a really strong platform to go and advocate for a particular change to that experience. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, our, our head of growth, for example, like brings stuff to me all the time. That's just like, I'm like, What how did you even find that information? It's like, oh, well I did this and then this, and then this API connects to this. And then that's how you know, I kind of just cobbled a few things together. And I'm like, how did you do that? That's wild. But that's where those like, you know, that detective mindset, that growth mindset that talk about, that's where you get massive results. Yeah. And it's a mindset. It's not just a tactic. It's not like I hacked, you know, the LinkedIn algorithm to do the, you know, the bro tree posts or something like that. It's, it's a strategy of experimentation over time.
3: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things about growth is it's very idea friendly. So part of the growth um, agenda is let's brainstorm. And this isn't kind of BS brainstorming where we come up with things and we're going to do what the hippo wanted to do anyway. We come up with ideas, we put them in a backlog, and then we keep an archive of our ideas. And I'm thinking in my group, I I, I want to remember who's, whose idea it was because good brainstorming. There's sort of a cloud of matter that, uh, and then the idea seems to emerge, but I want to attribute those ideas to my my team. And I, I want to remember when I when I roll these things out and I test them, I say, yeah, this was Mark's idea. You know, this guy on my team came up with this nine months ago. We're finally realizing it. So the brainstorming session, the gathering the ideas, putting them in the backlog, tagging them, and then keeping an archive of the experiments. One of the things that's hard about running experiments at three to 30 per week is you forget what you learned? Totally. It's really hard to institutionalize this. And I was looking; I wrote all our experiments on the board, and I I had the winners circled. And then I was under the gun to get a, a webinar email out today, and I was like, "Okay, button high, button low, two, button one, button." And I had to; it was a little bit of a struggle. So I need to work to institutionalize that knowledge. We're going to have to review it in staff meeting, uh, you know, once a week to make sure. Everybody's using those best practices, or at least they're doing something simple like rolling the last template, the winning template from the last campaign and using that for the next one.
2: Yeah, I, I love that because that is one of those things of being able to track what is successful and ultimately tracking the failures that fail for a certain reason that you could reuse for something else. That's some of those learnings where it's like capturing all of the learning and like why it didn't work and getting to the why is so critical. And I, I, we do the same thing here where you run all these crazy experiments, we don't catalog the failures. And you're like, those are the insights where it's like, hey, this didn't work at this point in time. So, you know, whatever it is. So what
3: happens if you don't categorize the failures? Do you, do you to run the experiment again? You yeah, try it course. again, people like they, for, they forgot that it didn't work. Yeah. If you don't put it on the, the no-go board.
2: Yeah, exactly. Cool. Lightning round. Let's do this. Lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. All right. Just like marketing automation from Pardot, fast mm-hmm. and easy you've already kind of answered number one, but I'll ask it anyways. What app are you using on your phone that's the most fun?
3: It's the Beehive app.
2: Love it. Number two, what is your favorite vacation spot?
3: Puerto Vallarta. Ooh,
2: that's a good one. What favorite book or podcast have you read or listened to recently?
3: The The book that's blowing my mind right now is
2: Hacking Growth by Sean Ellis. So
3: good. So good. Yeah. Just an amazing book.
2: Sean's great. Do you have a favorite or a specific thing that you're most excited about for the future of marketing?
3: I'd say the thing that is most intriguing or exciting about the future of marketing in terms of skills is empathy. Bernadette Jiwa in Marketing a Love Story does a really good job of cataloging the how and why of empathy and how to to do it essentially in a very short little 40-page book. It's a fantastic read. That is is the highest order understanding. And I think that is the human intelligence that is going to be the last thing that artificial intelligence understands. It's going to take them decades before they get really good at empathy.
2: What question do you never get asked that you wish you got asked more?
3: Uh, There's a couple of funny things on my resume that I always hope uh, people would would ask about, or it's up in my LinkedIn. And I, I ran a marathon and I rode a century on my bike and you always hope that people would want to know more about the experience. But to most people, it's it's pretty intelligible to run a marathon. But if you talk among marathoners of what the experience is like and how hard it is actually in the last four miles, it becomes an interesting conversation that's probably different than the asker who hasn't run a marathon might expect.
2: Yeah, I, I've i done a lot of running in my day, never a marathon. Yeah, after mile nine, it's like this is just continuous pain. So I always, uh, I have a uh, healthy respect for, for the marathon community, but I feel like, yeah, you're right. It's like, you're asking a question like, what was it like? But unless you do it, I mean, such is life. Right? No,
3: I could explain what it, if you asked me what it was like, I can tell you it is like a war inside your body between your will and your mind and your whatever sensors are, are taking on the pain and that you've run out of, uh, you know, material in your muscles to keep going and you get very dark. It's very psychologically very yeah. dark. And I think that's some part of your body's effort to try to get you to stop. Is just like you're thinking dark thoughts in addition to like this hurts and how much farther is it? It's way darker than that when you, when you really go. And I, and I did hit the wall and I hit the wall early. I hit the wall at like 24, maybe 23. And I'd have been out there a long time and I was, <laughs> it's a lot of
2: exposure. That's great. Final question. What's your best advice for a first time head of marketing? Or in this case, head of growth? <laughs>
3: My best advice for any leader and and any new leader in any position is to transition from being managed to managing up. People might not understand that, depending on what kind of company you grew up in, is your exercise of corporate maturity and your ability and your efforts to control your boss are sort of what defines your future. And it's a sort of a non-obvious thing. People don't talk about it very much. It's actually the the focus of my book, Hack the Corporate Fast Track, is corporate maturity and managing up. And how do you do that? How do you manage yourself and manage your boss to get those, you know, the good results you want?
2: Yeah, that's great advice. And I'm excited to read it. You brought a copy here today. Can we link it up in the show notes? Is it available online?
3: Yeah, it's available on Amazon. Oh,
2: perfect. Wonderful. Yeah, we'll link it up. But that's great advice. I mean, it it is definitely one of the most important pieces of leadership advice. Great, great insight. That's it. That's all we got, Eric. Thanks for hanging out. This um, I'm awesome.
3: glad to be here. This has been a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, love, love the analytical mindset, and uh, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon.
3: Take care.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes.
0: You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic.